associate pastor here at Real Life, and uh, I have to follow that last song. Like, we could just all go home, it'd be a good day. My goodness, worship team crushing it. So, thank you, thank you. But um, I'm going to be sharing with you and uh, carrying on the I Am Sermon series uh, for the next two weeks. So, you get me uh, today, and then you get me next Sunday, is uh, we work through the conversation about the statements Jesus makes in John's gospel, where he uh, says, I am, and then, and, you know, I'm the gate, I'm the, today we're going to talk about good shepherd, and um, so we're working through this discussion, and uh, it's interesting, John's gospel um, he, uh, uh, he makes these statements, I am, and, and they're not found in any other gospels. So John's uh, working through some details about how Jesus saw himself when he would say, I am. And uh, we've been unpacking that. And uh, man, it's just been good. Justin's been doing such a great job in the, in the previous weeks, just helping us see the, um, the depth of what Jesus is saying when he makes these statements. Because sometimes we can read these things as we go through the gospels. And, and on surface level, you know, it reads great, you know, like Jesus says, I'm the gate, and you know, we talk, okay, I can come to him, and, uh, and I'm the good shepherd, okay, I can kind of understand that, and, and what's been fun is that much on how the Bible is put together is that there's layers to it, right? So you can, on, at the beginning, on the surface, just kind of stay there, um, but, but if you really want to, you can go a little bit deeper, and then a little bit deeper, and there's just it continues to unpack and unfold. And so it's been fun to hear Justin work through the nuances of like the culture and the time that, um, um, uh, so when Jesus was saying this, how that would have hit the audience as they were hearing it. And then in turn, how does that hit us? And so today I'm going to continue into that conversation as we look at specifically John chapter 10, when Jesus makes the statement, I am the good shepherd. And uh, for us to, to really um, uh, see the impact of that statement alone, we actually have to go back in time. I have to go back in time to when Israel was being conquered by Babylon. And there were, um, there were two times Babylon went in to conquer uh, Israel. The first time, they didn't completely destroy everything, but they did take a remnant of people back with them to Babylon. And then eventually they came back a second time, and then that's when they wiped out um, the temple and, and finally took uh, people. But the first time, they took a remnant of, of Jews back to Babylon. And among those people was a, a young man named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a young, uh, um, he, was, he was getting set up to work in the temple. He was going to be a priest in the temple, but he was taken back to Babylon when he was about 30 years old, right before he was supposed to be ushered in as a new priest. Uh, he, gets, he gets taken away. And, uh, and we read in, in this writing, the book of Ezekiel that he writes, um, he is in Babylon and God begins to show up and give him visions. 
visions about the status of Israel, why Israel was being conquered. And so he has all these visions where God's revealing to him and, and you can go back and read it. And it's this you know, crazy kind of stuff that's hard for us to understand. But essentially what's happening is God's showing Israel, number one, why they're being conquered because they have been given over to false gods and worshiping false gods. And, uh, and then uh, subsequently additional visions about how God was eventually going to restore the nation. So it wasn't simply about the judgment, but also about how God was going to redeem and restore them. And so we have the book of Ezekiel, the writing of Ezekiel, and that's where this comes from. And for us to really unpack what's happening uh, in John 10, it's important for us to understand Ezekiel, particularly Ezekiel 34. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read to you sections of this chapter. And, um, and what I'm going to ask of you is something that we do uh, in our home group on Tuesday nights when we read scripture together. Um, uh, it's important that I'm going to read this to you and I'm going to ask that you don't read along with me. Now, that's not because I'm trying to hide something. Um, it's, it, the reason being is that most likely you may have a different English translation than, than what I'm reading. I'm going to read out of the NET. You might have an ESV. You might have an NLT. You might have NIV, right? And what happens is that when, when, when you're reading along as is, is I'm reading, the word differences or the choices that the translators make to communicate something throws our mind off. And all of a sudden, we're more working on trying to reconcile the word differences than actually hearing what's, what's being said. And so it's important for us to hear this because the first people to, to receive this would have heard it. They wouldn't have read it. They didn't have access like, like we do to read along in various you know, English translations. So when, when you're reading scripture, it's important to hear it because that's how it's written. It's written to be Heard. And so I want you to listen to the words, and then you can go back on your own and this week in your, in your groups and, 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 and read it on your own and, and make sure I'm okay and I'm doing it justice. But I promise you it's, it's going to be okay, but I just want you to listen, okay? And we're going to do three movements in this chapter. I'm going to take a section of the chapter, then another section, then another section. We're going to unpack what it looks like. So are you with me? Bible's closed, right? The only time you're going to be told to do that in church like, from me, like... <laughs> Put your Bibles away, right? Um, but we're going to be in Ezekiel 34. It's in your notes too, so you can, you can um, go back and revisit it. But this is what Ezekiel says. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. But with force and harshness you have ruled over them. They were scattered because they had no shepherd, and they became food for every wild beast. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the entire face of the earth with no one looking or searching for them. So right out of the gate, God's bringing judgment. 
He's revealing uh, the judgment against the leaders of Israel who had not shepherded the sheep very well. And there's lots of little things that, that, that he identifies that they did wrong. And so that's the intro into Ezekiel 34. Then you move into uh, verses 10 through 16, which I'll read next. So we have the judgment. Now we have what is God going to do about what they've been doing? Starting in verse 10. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look. I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from their hand. I will no longer let them be shepherds. The shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. I will rescue my sheep from their mouth so that they will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his scattered sheep, so I, on a cloudy, dark day, I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from foreign countries. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and, on the, and all the inhabited places of the land. In a good pasture, I will feed them. The mountain heights of Israel will be their pasture. They will lie down in lush pasture and they will feed on rich grass on the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and bring back the strays. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So now we have, we've moved from the judgment against what they were doing wrong, but now we have the response of God. And God very clearly proclaims, I'm gonna come and do something about this. I will become their, I will show them what it looks like to be cared for, to be helped, so then we have the third movement, and this is where it gets a little interesting. So we have the judgment. We have God, I'm going to respond. He says, I will do this. Then in verse 23 and 24, as we begin to wrap up the chapter, he wraps up with, I will set one shepherd over them, and he will feed them. Namely, my servant David. He will feed them and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And immediately as we're wrapping up and we're getting to the end, we go, well, wait a minute. So, so who's going to be their shepherd? I thought you said, God, you were going to be the shepherd. Now you're saying someone else is going to be a shepherd. And now you're naming a guy named David. And, and, and lest I remember, David's been dead for quite some time. What do, we, what do you mean David's going to be their shepherd? Are you going to bring David back? Is he going to lead again? What are, we, what are we talking about here? And so what's interesting is that there was a promise in Israel, in the Jews, there was hope that a Davidic-like figure, a David-like figure would one day come and rule once again. This promise is actually found in 2 Samuel at the end of David's life. The prophet speaks over David and says these words in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God makes a promise to David. He says, when the time comes for you to die, speaking to David, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. 
So the reality is, is that that was a promise to David. But then when we know the story of David, if we're following in the scriptures, we go, was his house permanent? No. And, as, and especially in Ezekiel's time, he's looking around going, well, no, we're, we're, we're being killed off here. We're being conquered. Right? So there was this hope that God says, that promise I made to David, I am actually going to fulfill that. I am going to set a shepherd who is a Davidic-like figure who will co-rule and shepherd with me. So the question is, will it be God who shepherds or the Davidic figure who shepherds? And the answer is yes. Yes. It's two sizes in coin. The, the, the one that comes from God, the Davidic figure, will also shepherd. And that's important for us, and we'll get to that in a minute. So let's look back. What did the shepherds not do? What was the accusation against the shepherds? There were a number of things that we find in the first segment that we looked at. Number one, you see, they were not strengthening the weak. They were not healing the sick. They were not caring and bandaging for the injured. They were not looking, seeking out, and bringing back the strays. They were not looking for the lost, and they served with force and harshness. So this is the accusation against the bad shepherds. Then God says, I will become their shepherd, and here are the things I'm going to do when I'm the shepherd. He says, I will seek out, in verse 16 and verse 14, you get this, I will seek the lost and bring back the strays, he says. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the sick. I will lead them to good pastures and feed them. I will lead them to good pastures and feed them. So you see what they did wrong and how God's going to respond to that. Now, we get to the Gospel of John. And John is writing about the life of Jesus. Now, John's gospel, if you've, if you've ever spent any time in any of the gospels, you'll know that John's gospel is very, very different. You get a lot of monologuing of Jesus in John's gospel. You get long sections of text where Jesus is talking and, and praying over his disciples, and it's just a lot, a lot of monologuing on Jesus that, that John writes down. Um, John's gospel, the last gospel uh, to be written uh, towards the end of the first century, and um, at this point in time, the three synoptic gospels um, had already been in circulation, most likely. Uh, we don't know whether or not John had or had seen. The likelihood is that John had known about these other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't know that he actually had them in his possession or, or had read them, but he was most certainly would have known them of them by the end of the first century. And so the question that sometimes we look at when we look at John's gospel, why did John decide to write down what he wrote down? Because already there were, there were good narratives of Jesus's life by reliable sources that were talking about Jesus. So, and, and so that at the end you have like, well, why did John feel the need to write what he wrote? And that's an interesting conversation that we could get into. But the point I want to say is that what John does is very different. He might have known about the synoptic, which means the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They actually, um, um, the content that they, they write with is, is they, they borrow from each other. So Mark's was written first, and, and Luke and Matthew use that as a template to actually write out theirs. But John does something different. Three-fourths of the gospel of John is unique to that gospel, meaning it's not found in any other gospel. Three-fourths of the content in John's gospel is only in John's gospel. We only know about it from John's gospel. So John clearly is trying to do something different. 
He's doing something different. He's telling stories that we don't get anywhere else because he, he has an agenda in mind. He's trying to help people, and we'll get to that agenda in a minute. But it's interesting. Let me show for you an example. In John chapter 4, we have a story that, that, that he tells us about Jesus and a Samaritan woman. He's crossing through the region of Samaria, which was a no-no for the, the Jewish people. He stops at a well in the middle of the day to talk to a woman by himself, which was a no-no in Jewish culture. And he has this conversation about the Samaritan people and, and how he's calling all people back to him, these people that were out and, and were considered strays. And all of a sudden, he's chasing people who are on the fringe and pulling them in. And we go, that sounds a little bit like what God was going to do in Ezekiel 34. And then you get to the next story in John's gospel in chapter 5, and you get a story about a paralytic guy that's, that's, that, that needs healing. And he says, take up your mat and walk and go, and he heals them. All of a sudden, you have stories of healing. And you're going, well, that sounds a lot like what God's going to do in Ezekiel 34. And then the very next story that you have after that, you have Jesus on a hillside with a bunch of people, and he begins to feed them, both literally and spiritually. And all of a sudden, we're going, well, gosh, that sounds a lot like Ezekiel 34. It's almost like John's setting this up for something, isn't it? Right? It's like he's setting us up. Because then you get to John chapter 10, and it's like the big mic drop moment for Jesus. He says in John chapter 10, verse 11 through 18, I am the good shepherd. And any Israelite hearing that in that moment would have went Ezekiel 34. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What was the primary accusation of the bad shepherds? They were feeding themselves. And Jesus goes, no, I lay my life down. The hired hand who is not a shepherd and does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep and runs away. He says it again. I am the good shepherd. As if the first time didn't hit you, the second time would have been a slap across the face if you weren't paying attention. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. When you read God's response in Ezekiel 34, verses 10 through 16, it's like God is constantly, I will read, they're my people and I'm gonna get them and I'm gonna care for them. He says, they know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep, I have other sheep that do not come from the sheepfold. I must bring them too. Like the chasing the strays, seeking the lost, right? All the things that God said he was going to do. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down in my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up again. This commandment I received from my Father. See from my father. And what's interesting, if you're tracking with the rest of the story in John, the very next story that we get is the power to resurrect the dead. The Lazarus story. It's like John's setting us up here. He's leading us down. Now, it's no wonder, right after Jesus makes these statements, if you read the next set of, of, of text, you read about everyone got upset 
Everyone got ticked, like an uproar among the Jewish people. And when you know Ezekiel 34, you go, well, now that makes sense. Why would they get upset? Why would it cause an uproar for Jesus to say, I'm the good shepherd? Because he's precisely placing himself in the Ezekiel 34 text saying, I'm the Davidic figure. I, I am this shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And everyone goes, wait a minute, because that's huge implications for what Jesus is doing. And that's not the end of it for John. So we have this, these, these statements that connect it to Ezekiel 34, but John's not done. John's doing something uniquely different. So the rest of the gospel, John goes, okay, I've set that, that marker right there. And then he leads us through. We have a story about Lazarus that we're going to talk about that next week. And then we go right into to the, the whole Easter season and the Passover and, and the Last Supper and, and, and all this long discourse from Jesus to the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we get post-resurrection Jesus. And John writes more about the post-resurrection Jesus than any other gospel because John's trying to take us somewhere. I think John's trying to show us something about the, the, number one, the fact that God was going to be their shepherd. Jesus stands up and says, hey, that's me. That's me. Look at my life and the things that I've done. And now I've brought that to fulfillment through my resurrection. And then we get interesting stories about Jesus after this. And we have stories of Jesus showing up in a room and, and he's like, hey, you know, t test my hand, you know, Thomas. Like, it's me, I'm real. And one of the final stories that John gives us is in John chapter 21. And what happens is that the disciples are now on the sea fishing again. They've gone back to doing the thing that they were doing before Jesus got to them, right? And in the other Gospels, we know that Jesus, when he met Peter, calls out to him and said, come, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He was calling Peter out of uh, one reality and bringing him into a new reality. And we find in John chapter 21 that Peter had actually gone back to the old reality. Okay? And Jesus walks up on the beach and sees him fishing, and he does the thing that he did with them the first time. He says, hey, cast your nets out on the other side of the boat, because they hadn't caught anything all day. So they cast the nets out, and they begin to haul in the fish, and immediately Peter's like, ding, 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 I know who that is on the beach. Jumps out of the boat, runs after Jesus, meets Jesus on the beach, and then they have breakfast together, which sounds amazing, right? They have breakfast together. I love breakfast. That would be an amazing moment. They, they cook up. Can you imagine? Like, for me, sometimes I, like, put myself in that story, and I'm like, oh, you're alive, you're alive. It's like, man, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, let's cook you some fish. Like, I don't know, it's just, it's interesting. It's an interesting picture in my head. They're just hanging out on the beach. And John tells us a story because there's a reality about this idea of shepherding that, that John's trying to get us to understand as people who are hearing and reading this text later, okay? He tells a story about how uh, Jesus takes Peter and commissions him into the full reality of what he was meant to be in post-resurrection. Because understand, following Jesus always leads to shepherding. Following leads to shepherding. In John chapter 21, verse 15, it says this. Then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? 
He replied, it's like, that's an interesting question, right? It's like me asking my kids, do you love me more than, you know, your mom and the rest of your family? Um, he says, I replied, uh, which is the answer is no. They love their mom more. Um, he replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus told him, feed my lambs. Remember, the accusation was that they were feeding themselves, right? Bad shepherds feed themselves. He says, feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed, as any of us would be, like, do you not hear me, Lord? Then he asked him a third time, do you love me? And said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus replied, feed my sheep. Now, this can be unpacked, and, and we could have a good time talking about this in itself, but I just want to understand, what is Jesus inviting Peter into? Jesus is inviting Peter into shepherding. Will you be willing to shepherd? You saw how I did it. You saw the life that I lived. Now it's your turn to go and shepherd people. Jesus is inviting Peter, Peter to the shepherding task. And this seems, this story seems to be that John's setting this up, that this is the activity of a post-resurrection people. People that are living post-resurrection are invited into the role and act of shepherding. And this is the story of the Bible, like, summarized. If we were just to say, the Bible's about God who made everything good and perfect, and then it just, you know, two pages later, it all goes to heck, right? And, they, and it's a downward spiral, and it's like God constantly stepping into history, using people to try to fix it, but the people are broken, Right, And it doesn't work, or maybe it works for a little bit, but they're, but they're using flawed humans to try to, to work together, and God's constantly using humans to try to bring about the good creation to the point that God finally says, kind of like in Ezekiel, you know what, forget about it. I'm just going to come down and show you myself what I'm talking about. Enter Jesus, right? Jesus shows us what it looks like when the kingdom of God is fully active and alive in the world, what it looks like when God's in control, and then, once again, chooses to partner with humans to carry on that task from that point forward, but this time with the Spirit of God in and active in us. And this is exactly what he's doing. He's saying, now I'm inviting you, Peter, into this, and this requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice from us, right? If we're going to be shepherds, co-shepherds with Jesus, we've got to be willing to sacrifice. We'll get to that in a minute. There's two ways of seeing this. Traditionally, the view of shepherding, when we talk about shepherding in church circles, we tend to think of church leadership, right? Oh, the pastor, he's the shepherd, and he should be shepherding people. And, and the answer is yes, right? There's, there's a degree of like leadership structure that, that we carry um, a, a shepherding role, but I think it's more than that. And I think we miss the point when we just put shepherding on the, on the shoulders of whatever leadership is in the church, we're missing the bigger picture that actually Jesus is inviting any follower of him, any disciple to be a shepherd. We're all called to be shepherds. The outworking of loving Jesus is to care about the things he cared about, right? And he cared about his sheep, he cared about people. 
He cared about the disenfranchised. He cared about the broken. He cared about the hurting. He was, he was healing and, 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 and helping and bringing people back into right relationship. And we see this correlation with Peter. The movement from being a disciple of Jesus, which Peter was, to becoming a disciple maker, which is what Jesus was inviting him into, is the natural progression of our faith in Jesus. We are all disciples of Jesus, yes. But you were never meant to stay that way. You're meant to move into disciple making, which is shepherding. This is what we call it. It's a label we put on it. It's disciple making. It's where we live life and share life with people and help people and serve people the way that Jesus would and love people the way that Jesus would. This is the shepherding task. We call this disciple making. And that's the natural progress, right? We were never meant to just simply be disciples. We are that, but we're called into a much bigger role than that. The natural question should be, who are you shepherding as a follower of Jesus? Who are you shepherding? And that requires sacrifice. What does this look like? What does this look like? Well, um, uh, it was really cool. Uh, it was about two weeks ago now, a week and a half ago, uh, Justin and I got a text from uh, a gal in our church, Susan Espino. And uh, it was one of those texts about um, a family in need in our church. It said, hey, we just, I didn't know if you were aware of this. And, uh, and we responded, yeah, yeah you know, we're aware of this need this family has and what's going on in their life. And, and she said, okay, I just wanted to make sure you knew. Um, I've actually been talking a lot with them and sharing life with them. Um, I'm actually mobilizing some people to kind of help them along. Uh, I got them a card and, and I'm talking with them. And, and what just blew my mind was like sometimes... The response can be in churches to pastors is that, hey, here's this need, pastor, go and, go and do it. Go, go, go shepherd, right? And, and we're happy to, <laughs> no doubt, like we love, like, but the beautiful thing about this, and I just, just, just saying, responding to Susan, saying, Susan, thank you for shepherding God's people because that's what she was doing. She was taking on the ownership, saying, I can do something, I can help. I can be there. I can help mobilize because she sees herself as a shepherd. Sees herself as a shepherd. So the question might be, what are the tools of the shepherd in today's day? What are the, what are the ways that we shepherd? There's a few things I want to point out. Uh, two ways that we should exist and one, one active way that we can, we can shepherd. The first is this. Um, we need to be people of empathy. A good shepherd is an empathetic person. Uh, uh, David Voss said this, empathy is not the truth. It's not the reality. It's just the other side's point of view. That's empathy. Can you at least see the other side point of view? We're not saying that you have to believe it and not saying it has to be the truth. It's just, do you understand the other side's point of view? Do you have empathy? Boy, we could use a bit of that in our world today, right? Right? Can you just see the other side? I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but can you understand? Boy, that alone has like helped me change my marriage. <laughs> like, because I'd like to be the right, right? I want to be the one that's in the right. I want to, I'll argue with you until I'm right. And, and, uh, and that's not, that doesn't make for a healthy marriage. I'm just going to encourage, <laughs> doesn't make for a healthy marriage. Um, but learning to be empathetic, like, can I just understand that side? Right? We need to be people that are empathetic. We need to be people that are vulnerable. 
Vulnerability is not weakness. Vulnerability is pure courage. It is the birthplace of belonging and love. Vulnerability. Now, again, talk about hitting the hard parts of me because I tend to not be a vulnerable person and I've been trying to walk in that reality in my life and in my marriage and it's been hard, but here's the beautiful thing. So it takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes risk to be vulnerable, but here's the beautiful thing about vulnerability is the moment you are vulnerable, it creates atmosphere for relationship to happen because now you're, you're willing to say, I, I don't have it all figured out. Here's, here's my shortcomings, and it gives permission. It actually builds relationship because it gives permission for people to go, oh, okay, we, we can talk now, right? It takes courage to be vulnerable, but to be a good shepherd in today's day and age, we have to be vulnerable because we, we like to be the people that think we have it all figured out. And we hate to expose our own brokenness and sin because we're, we're afraid of what people will think. But it takes courage to be vulnerable. And when you do, it removes obstacles all the time when you're willing to be vulnerable. So those are two ways of existing. We need to be a good shepherd today. You need to be someone who's empathetic. You need to be someone who's willing to be vulnerable. The question is, are you willing to do that? Now, the third thing, the third, third tip uh, is like, you know, what does every shepherd have, right? You have the picture in your mind, shepherd has a staff, right? They have the, the tool that they're hooking and doing the thing. I really don't know what they do with this. They're whacking the sheep, but um, whatever they do, they have something that's helping them. I could have done research on what shepherds do with those things, but um, it, didn't, it didn't matter. The point is, you know what I'm talking about. No one you know what I'm talking about. I just don't care that much. Um, you know, so they have the stick and um, the, the staff, the stick, <laughs> the stick. Um, sorry. Um, so what's our stick? What's our staff today, right? The, the best shepherding tool that you can have today, oh, and I left it back there, is your cell phone. Your cell phone is your, is your staff. It's your staff. Because in no other time in history will we be able to connect with people that we haven't seen or we don't have to meet face-to-face. When's the last time you texted that person and said, hey, how you doing? Hey, you doing okay? I haven't seen you in a while. Hey, I've been thinking about you. You want to get coffee together? Shepherding. It's our staff. It's your cell phone. Here's the thing I'm going to ask of you when we take a minute because we're wrapping up. I want you to be thinking in your head that person in your life that God has put there for you to shepherd. When's the last time you sent an encouraging text to them or a check-in text? Hey, how you doing? Hey, is there anything you need? Been thinking about you? We're going to use our shepherding staff in a minute. But these are things that we can do. We're people of empathy. We're people that are vulnerable. People that use the tools and resources around us to actually chase, right? Chase the strays. That's what God said he was going to do. That was the accusation against bad shepherds. They weren't chasing people. The good shepherd's going to come and chase people. We see in Jesus' life, he chased people. He went after the people that were on the outside. You're going to use the tool and resource to do that. So here's my take home. This is all disciple making. What we're talking about here is what real life we invite you into. This is what we're about. You heard Justin said it. Our vision, reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. We do that by being disciples who make disciples who make more and more disciples. We're shepherds. We are a church of shepherds. 
We're not consumers. We're a church of shepherds, and you're always going to be pushed here at Real Life and challenged to be disciple makers, to be shepherds. But here's our take home. I want to invite you into the truth that we're all called to be shepherds. And are you willing to be led by Jesus into that reality as you lead others to Jesus? Right? He's shepherding you. Are you willing to shepherd others towards him? So one, who are you going to chase this week? You're going to chase. Two, who are you going to serve in a time of need? Right? Good shepherd heals the sick, binds the wounds. Who are you going to help? Someone's in need. Number three, who are you going to care for? Right? Good shepherd cares for these people. And that, again, that's the sacrifice. That's Jesus said, I laid my life down for the sheep. And he's inviting us to lay our lives down for others. It requires sacrifice. The reality is, the reality is, is that you may never be required to lay your life down for someone. Right? We say that. Would you be willing to lay your life down for someone else? And like the reality is like that, that's never probably going to happen. So we're like, yeah, sure. Because like we know it's never going to happen. But Jenny said this one time that I, I loved and it's always stuck with me. She said, maybe the better question is, are you willing to be uh, mildly inconvenienced for others? Or Jenny might say wildly, you know, like, like massively inconvenienced. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for others? Maybe that's the new version of laying your life down, right? Are you willing to be inconvenienced for someone else? Who are you going to care for? Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to chase? We're about to step into our moment of communion, and we have um, our ushers coming up. They, if you didn't grab communion on your way in, they're going to make their way back, and you can go ahead and just lift your hand, let them know you didn't get it, and they'll, they'll make sure you, you get one. Go ahead. Thank you guys for helping. We're going to go into a time of communion right now. And usually, this is like that time of reflection where we're kind of sitting, we're thinking, we're wrestling with like, oh, and maybe you need to do that. But there's some of you in here, I'm guessing, that right now you have that name. Right now you know that person. That God has put in your life to shepherd. And I'm going to invite you during this moment of, of quiet and reflection for you to get your phone out and text them right now and go, I'm thinking of you. How you doing? Can we meet up later? Whatever it is that God's leading you, but I want to invite you to use your shepherding tool during this time where maybe you just need to sit and think and reflect of the people that God's put in your life that you could be shepherding. But as, before we take communion, we're going to take a few minutes. And would you reflect on this? And if you need to text someone, bust out the phone and make it happen.